So Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you. So having looked at Psalm 1 last week, uh, this week we're going to spend our time in Psalm 2. Now last week you'll recall from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are literary units that scholars call an inclusio. So they serve as, uh, the two Psalms serve as bookends. So Psalm 1 and the, the first verse of Psalm 1 and the last verse of Psalm 2 uh, serve as bookends. And as we know, the 150 Psalms in the Psalter were written over the course of approximately 1,000 years. And these two Psalms were strategically positioned at the entrance point of the Psalter. And with this in mind, these two Psalms are essential to anyone entering the house of worship. Psalm 1 declares the blessedness of the righteous and the misery and future of the wicked. It presents two ways of life the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. This morning, as we look at Psalm 2, we will clearly see that God is sovereign over the world. The Trinitarian God of Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, rule the world, and there is not one molecule, not one person that can thwart His rule. We see that human rebellion, dismissing or rejecting God in life, is utterly futile. God, the creator of all, will not be mocked. And all seven billion people plus currently living in the world will be held accountable to him. Every person that ever lived will stand before God and account for what they did or didn't do with their life. And that includes you and I this morning. Psalm 2, like Psalm 1, should seize our attention. And in some cases, wake us up. We're living in a time where God isn't even taken seriously in much of the confessing church. And as one only needs to look at how too many are so concerned about offending people when they should be more concerned about offending God. We live in an age where, God is be, where, God, where the God being preached sadly from many pulpits is more like us and less like himself. We hear him referred to in such casual, disrespectful manner as the big guy upstairs, where this God is such a nice guy, just like you and I. One only needs to walk into a Christian bookstore and observe 
what's popular in, in the contemporary Christian culture. Whether it be books or music, and you'll notice the resources that exalt the character and nature of God are relegated to online availability. While these stores are flooded with self-centered, self-exalting music and books. It's a sad state of affairs in much of the confessing church. And if that wasn't sad enough, let's consider what's going on in our culture right now. We see our society and culture around us raging in hostility, filled with anger towards anyone or anything that would advocate the moral constraints outlined in the Bible. What was unthinkable only a few years ago is now being promoted by leading politicians and major media networks. The wickedness of man is pushing the boundaries further and further, with seemingly no boundaries left. We can't get rainbow sidewalks up quick enough to mock God's purpose in marriage, and if killing an unborn baby up to full term isn't enough, Soon, we will be, we'll want to be able to kill the innocent child just after birth if it's not up to our desired specs. And, if, and in April of this year, the Supreme Court of British Columbia found a father guilty of family violence for opposing sex reassignment in his 14-year-old daughter. We see the morally bankrupt programs that are being implemented in public schools at such an extreme that many are resorting to homeschooling to protect their children from the absolute strategically directed wickedness that is being indoctrinated on children. Now we may be thinking at this point, how much worse can it get? I would remind us it has always been bad and often much worse. Consider the early church where Christians were, were lit up like torches and burned publicly for following Christ. What we are seeing today in our Western context is a downward progression into wickedness as the surrounding culture is dissing itself from the past, influ past influence by the virtues of Christianity. So this morning we look at Psalm 2 which will encourage us as we take our focus off the surrounding culture and look at our Trinitarian God who is in complete control over all the affairs of man. We will see that God is sovereign over the world and all human rebellion is futile against his anointed one, Jesus Christ. Now Psalm 2 encouraged and battled Israel in the time past with the good news that the Lord in his battle with the kings of the earth would gain worldwide victory through his Davidic king. And for us today we see the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Looking at Psalm 2 in your Bible, similar to Psalm 1, you will notice that it does not have a subscript identifying the author. However, we know from Acts 4.25 that the author is King David. Therefore, Psalm 2 is a Davidic psalm. Now, 75 out of the 150 psalms in the Psalter are written by King David. We will see that Psalm 2 has both a near and far fulfillment. We see the psalm fulfilled in King David's life, and we see it fulfilled in the coming of the Anointed One, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John Calvin, for example, saw the temporal kingdom of David as a type of eternal kingdom of Christ. Calvin writes, that David prophesied concerning Christ is clearly manifest from this, that he knew his own kingdom to be a mere shadow, 
David's temporal kingdom was a kind of earnest to God's ancient people of the eternal kingdom, which at length was truly established in the person of Christ, end quote. This psalm is extremely important in the Psalter, and it is quoted some 18 times throughout the New Testament, more than any other psalm. The reason the New Testament authors extensively quote Psalm 2 will be clear. It is to make it abundantly known that Jesus is indeed the long-expected Messiah King of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is broken out into four stanzas, four voices, if you will. So if you're taking notes, the first stanza, which is verse 1 to 3, is the voice of the nations, the voice of rage. The second stanza, verses 4 to 6, is the voice of the Father, the voice of derision. And the third stanza, verse 7 to 9, is the voice of the Son, the voice of faithfulness. And the fourth stanza, uh, verse 10 to 12, is the voice like the Holy Spirit, the voice of warning. So now let's look at the first uh, verses, 1 to 3. The voice of the nations, the voice of rage. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2 begins with a question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? We are going to see from Scripture exactly why this is the case. When we consider the first three verses, it certainly sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? Even in our time, from a psalm written approximately 3,000 years ago. This describes perfectly what we see going on in the world today. We see in these three verses a description of sinful humanity's resistance and hatred for God's authority. The nations rage and the people plot in vain. The word translated plot is the same word that is translated meditate in Psalm 1-2 where it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Here again we see the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked meditate, they plot, they conspire day and night in vain. So set before us is the nations and the people who are in an uproar. They are revolting against the authority of God. They want to be free, fully autonomous. Autonomy, pro-choice, self-rule is of the highest virtues of the nations, peoples, kings, and rulers. That reject and dismiss the authority of God and his anointed one. The Gentile nations in times past rejected the authority of God's anointed one over Israel. And today we see the mass rejection of Christ's authority over the whole world. This rage against God is an irrational rage. The King James Version of the Bible says they imagine a vain thing. Other translations say they conspire. Vain means futile, insane, hopeless, foolish. It speaks of the total depravity of man. We see similar language in Romans chapter 1 verses 21 where Paul says, 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their thoughts are futile or vain. Their thoughts are darkened by sin. This sinful heart is darkened and they prefer their own ignorance over the knowledge of God. Instead of honoring God, they reject and dismiss Him. We need to understand this doesn't describe some of humanity. This describes all of humanity. This describes the Christian too, prior to salvation, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, living and loving sin, rejecting and hating God. Consider Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. Romans chapter 3, 9 to 12 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We see no one is exempt. And all are guilty before God. All humanity is condemned in their guilty rebellion before God. Looking at verse 2 and 3 now, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here we see the kings and rulers set themselves. That means they're taking a stand. They're taking aggressive fighting posture in full resistance, believing they can thwart the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. They counsel together. They engage in plotting schemes. They conspire one with another, united in their resistance to God, in their futile efforts to escape his rule, his reign, and ultimately divine justice. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, 25 to 28, where this passage is quoted directly. Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 28. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We see here the initial fulfillment of, psalm, of this psalm is the crucifixion of Christ. When the rulers of this world took counsel and conspired one with another against the Lord and against his anointed. Here in the book of Acts we see both the apostle Peter and John taking comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold what would happen. They had witnessed the initial fulfillment of this prophecy in the city of Jerusalem. And we know from Scripture the final fulfillment is presented in Revelations chapter 
1911 to 21, which Jeremy read during the call of worship. To quote John MacArthur regarding this passage, he says, it reminds us that, the, that God is the supreme historian who wrote all history before it ever began. And having done their worst, they merely succeeded in fulfilling God's eternal plan. The futile united front against the Lord and against his anointed didn't begin nor stop at the crucifixion of Christ and rages on throughout the ages and we see it all too well today. Now let's look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The metaphors bonds and cords refer literally to leather thongs that kept the yoke on oxen in place. It also could illustrate the ropes and shackles conquering kings placed on their captives. This powerful imagery illustrates the utterly bankrupt understanding sinful man humanity has regarding their spiritual condition. Here they slander the creator of the universe as if he is the one who has them in bondage, while they are in fact slaves to their own devices, slaves to their own sinful passions. And for those that have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, they know the freedom that Christ provides. There is freedom from destructive sinful habits and practices that wage war on the soul. If you are here this morning and have destructive sinful habits waging war on your soul, know that you can find freedom in Jesus Christ. However, this is not what they had in mind. They want to be free from God's rules, God's reign, and God's justice. They want to be free from the moral constraints of God's law. This is the nature of sin. And even for those that profess Christ as Lord, that temptation is still present. For the Christian this morning, we have great joy and happiness while the chaos ensues around us. We meditate and delight in God's law. And as we saw last week illustrated so perfectly in Psalm 1, we are like trees planted by streams of water. We are flourishing and bearing fruit in season. We have freedom in Christ and we offer that freedom to all that would come. Now let's hear the voice of the Father in response to the voice of the nations in verses 4, 5, and 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God now responds to the slander and pooled arrogance of his sinful creatures, and it is utterly terrifying for those that are in rebellion against God. This is not a story of fiction, nor is it a well-crafted allegory. And this is nothing like the Hollywood version of God from the heretical movie, The Shack. This is God the Father on his throne in heaven, as the Apostle John describes in Revelation chapter 4. This is the Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 description of God, where it says, Then I saw the great white throne, and on him was who, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So here we are at verse 4, where we read, He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord's laughter is a, is a mocking, scoffing type of laughter. We see this type of laughter recorded three times in the Psalms. The Psalm 2-4, Psalm 37-13, also Psalm 59-8, and once in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 1-26. Now if you look these verses up, you'll observe that in all these instances, they have to do with evil nations and evil people who think they have one up on God. In each of these verses, God's laughter is derisive, as we've seen in this psalm. Now, Patrick Miller observes prospectively about God's laughter. In a strange way, it is one of the most assuring sounds in the whole Psalter, as it relativizes even the largest of human claims for ultimate control over the affairs of peoples and nations. The fierce terror is made the object of laughter and derision, and thus is rendered impotent to frighten those who hear the laughter of God in the background. Here we see the comfort that comes from this derisive laughter only if you're in Christ. However, it should be utterly terrifying for those who are still in rebellion against God, for those still rejecting and dismissing God. Now verse 4 continues. It says, The Lord has him in derision. Now we can't be surprised as we consider the contrast between the kings of the earth and he who sits in the heavens. Here we see the Lord seated on his throne in heaven. Who do the nations and people and kings think they are to even contemplate rebellion against the king of the universe? To put this all in perspective, look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 to 23. I'm going to read a few passages from that section. That's Isaiah 40, verses 15 to 23. Even the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who brings princes to naught it makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Now moving to verse four, uh, 5 and 6, we see God's derisive laughter, scoffing and mocking, turn to anger. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, on Zion, my holy hill. God is angry at the wicked every day. We know this from Psalm 7, uh, verses 11 to 13, where it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He, will, he has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. I know you may have heard that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and is just waiting for you to find time for him. But the popular understanding of this isn't what the Bible teaches. This is a God fashioned after man and not from the pages of Scripture. If you're here this morning and, and have not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is being stored up against you. 
all while His mercy and grace has been extended to you in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, verses 30 and 31, we read, The Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My Christian brothers and sisters, this speaks to us as well. If you are walking in unrepentant sin, today is the day to repent and to turn away from sin and turn to Christ in repentance. Verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here God accomplishes what the kings, nations, and people tried so hard to prevent. God the Father has installed His King. God the Son, initially, uh, this was fulfilled with the kings of Israel and Judah, but ultimately filled, fulfilled with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now we read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now right now, all the time, 24-7, Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. Now let's hear the voice of the Son in verses 7, 8, and 9. And I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The speaker now changes from God the Father to God the Son. This is amazing when we consider what we're hearing, as it's an intra-Trinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son. Here we see two metaphors. First, the Lord's anointing, anointed in this passage recalls the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. The Old Testament clearly communicates that all kings of Israel are figuratively a son of God. In 2 Samuel 7.14, we see David's promise concerning Solomon. I quote, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. As a son of God, the Davidic king ruled God's people on God's behalf. Second, today I've begotten you is also a figure of speech. This does not refer to a physical begetting of a baby. When the passage says, Today, today we see it direct, uh, directly used on a day of coronation, when the king was a, uh, was a grown man. This metaphor points to the close relationship between God and the Davidic king. Now what was originally a figure of speech in the Old Testament now is a literal historical reality in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Look at Acts uh, chapter 13 verses 32 to 33 with me, please. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Consider the timeline for a moment. Before the world was, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in perfect fellowship. The Son agreed to become a man and perform all that was necessary 
to redeem those given to him by the Father. The second person of the Trinity, Christ the Son, would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king approximately 2,000 years ago. Jesus voluntarily placed himself under the original covenant of works where he would be successful when Adam wasn't. And after Herod, Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel conspired together and put him to death by crucifixion, God raised him from the dead and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority, ruling and reigning in heaven. And as we look at verse 8 and 9, we should note the importance of the, and obligation of sharing the gospel with others. We looked at verse 6 where it speaks of God in the past tense establishing his king in Zion. And now in a future sense in verses 8 and 9 where he says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 2, verses 8, says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We know there's still many, like the rulers of the Psalms opening lines, who still resist him. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation, and as grateful subjects of Jesus' divine kingdom, we are commanded to make his name known among the nations. The church has been given the Great Commission, and we see this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, where it reads, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you till the end of the age. Now we see this as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, chapter eight, uh, 5, verses 18 to 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sakes, he made him no... He, he, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation and are ambassadors for Christ until he returns. Are you being faithful with sharing the message of reconciliation with those you are in contact with? Consider the message we have to share. Quote I read earlier, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is available for all who repent of their sins and turn to Christ for salvation. Looking at verse 9 now, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here we see the contrast between the strong rod of iron and the fragility of a potter's vessel. In ancient Egypt, 
the Pharaoh would have the names of his enemies written on potter's vessels. And they would literally smash the vessels after they were broken into numerous potsherds. The vessels could never be put together again, and this symbolized the victory over his enemies. This points to a time in the future where all rebellion against God will be permanently destroyed through his son Jesus Christ. Consider Revelation chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2 verse 26 to 27. It says, The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and when, earth pot and, uh, and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. When Jesus returns in all his glory, it will be much different than when he came as a servant, lived among sinful humanity in perfect obedience to the Father, and then died for the sins of all who would put their faith in him. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 to 10 that's 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1 7 to 10 and consider the description given here when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming, fly, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We know from Romans chapter 1, 18 to 21 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We see the reason from Scripture that they do not know God is not because of ignorance. Rather, it is because of wickedness. A love for sin and self, this is what causes the wicked to suppress the truth. They do not know, they do not know because God has made it plain to them. So, for the Christian this morning, there is nothing to fear as we are secure in Christ. And as we saw last week in Psalm verse 1 to 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. We are assured that God cares for his own, he protects his own, and he rewards his own. The Christian has an intimate acquaintance with God through Jesus Christ, who bore the full payment and punishment for their sins. Now let's hear from the final voice in the last stanza, and that's uh, verses 10, 11, and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the final stanza, we hear a voice likened to the Holy Spirit speaking on behalf of God. Now the voice is not expressly identified for us in this psalm. After all that has been said, he is pleading, Be wise, be warned, O rulers, O kings of the earth. What we are basically hearing here is, Wake up, wise up. You're about to be subject to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now is the time for your complete and full unconditional surrender 
to Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says that to serve the Lord means to worship the Lord, to submit to his kingship. Here they must come under the king's rule and obey him. This is the same way a slave surrenders to his master. The kings of the earth are to serve the Lord with fear, with trembling, with reverence and awe. They're also to rejoice. This is a cause for great rejoicing. The king extends mercy by not giving them what they deserve and, and grace by giving them what they don't deserve. Consider this morning what scripture says about us prior to our surrender. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Oh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. This is us prior to Christ, and now we're rejoicing with trembling too. If you have not yet unconditionally surrendered to Christ, today is the day to do so. Don't wait, as his mercy and grace is extended to you this morning. The last verse, verse 12, says, The kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What is in focus here is a kiss of submission, similar to the ancient world where people would kiss the feet of a king as a sign of their homage and submission to that king. This was the same for lesser kings submitting to greater kings that conquered them. The greater king would be high and lifted up on his throne, and the defeated king would fall on his hands and knees and kiss the feet of the conquered, conquering king. The conquering king would show mercy and let the lesser king live. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Unlike the conquering earthly kings, this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1, 1 opens the inclusio of Psalm 1 and 2 with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And now the last sentence of Psalm 2 ends with, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As a final encouragement to submit, the psalm ends with a beatitude. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all, not just the kings of the earth, but all who hear the words and take heed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When we hear the word refuge, we should think of shelter, uh, taking shelter in God through Jesus Christ. The glorious reality presented in both Psalm 1 and 2 is the blessed person has a relationship with God which provides refuge and shelter first from God's wrath through Christ's atonement and secondly provides spiritual shelter when going through all the storms and circumstances of life consider Psalm 46 verse 1 to 3 it says God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear Though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, 
This is what we have in Christ. This is the assurance we have from Scripture. And this is why we meditate and delight on God's Word all the time. These aren't just nice sayings of poetry. These are promises of God to the believer, to the blessed person. And if you're outside the shelter of God this morning, now is the time. Now is the time to come to Christ. You will not only escape the wrath to come, but you will find peace and security that can only come from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Hopefully Psalm 2 has encouraged you this morning. We will take our, as we took, take our focus off the surrounding culture and worship our God who is in complete control over all the affairs of man. Now God is so sovereign over the world and all human rebellion is futile to him against his anointed one, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.